Hello, I'm Jakob Müller. And I'm Judith Albert, and you are listening to the podcast Wannsee, looking at the international dimension of the Holocaust. In each of our episodes, we are going to focus on one country, and we are going to try to give a personal impression of the experience the persecuted people made during the Second World War. For this, we are going to talk with historians who have special expertise on the subject. The focus of our today's episode is on Germany. So begin with where it all started. Today we talk about Leo Beck, one of the leading thinkers of liberal Judaism in the 20th century and the most prominent figure of German Jewish community during Nazi time. He was born in 1873 in Lissa, a town with a substantial Jewish community that became part of Poland after the First World War. His first station as a rabbi in 1897 was Opeln, which is now the Polish Opole. Here, the 27-year-old published The Essence of Judaism, a book that established him as one of the leading thinkers of liberal Judaism. It was a response to the Protestant scholar Adolf von Harnack's The Essence of Christianity. After a stay in Düsseldorf, in 1912 he became rabbi in Berlin, where he would stay for 30 years. During World War I, Beck served as a military rabbi in the German army. In the 1920s he was influential both as a scholar and a rabbi. He was one of the founders of the World Union for Progressive Judaism that he presided over from 1938 to 1953. When the Nazis came to power in 1933, He took the lead of the new founded Reichsvertretung, the national or Reich representation of German Jews. The Reichsvertretung united most Jewish organizations in Germany to enable a joint representation vis-à-vis -vis the Nazi regime. After the so-called Crystal Night, the pogrom of November 1938, the organization was disbanded. It was replaced by the compulsory Reichsvereinigung the Reich Association, which was controlled by the Nazi authorities. Despite the transformation into a tool of the persecution, Beck decided to stay at the top of his organization. Although he and his colleagues organized the emigration of German Jews, he himself refused to leave Germany and stayed in Berlin until his deportation to the Theresienstadt ghetto in January 1943. Four sisters and two brothers of Beck were murdered during the Holocaust, but Beck survived. He continued to be one of the most important personalities of liberal Judaism until his death in 1956. For our podcast, we are honored to talk about Beck with the renowned historian Michael A. Meyer. He was born in 1937 in Berlin. His family and he managed to immigrate to America in 1941. He was professor at the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in Cincinnati, Ohio, for over 50 years. He also served as international president of the Leo Beck Institute from 1992 until 2013. He also is a three times National Jewish Book Award winner 
and published, among a high number of other books, the biography on Leo Bagg, with the subtitle Living a Religious Imperative in Troubled Times, about which we are going to talk today. Welcome to our podcast, Michael. It's an honor to have you here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be part of it. So to go into the first question, it's quite a big question. Um, and as my colleague already told, Beck's book, The Essence of Judaism, was a response to Adolf von Harnack's The Essence of Christianity. Harnack's book is based on anti-Judaism and has an anti-Semitic argumentation. The moment Beck wrote his book as a response to this, his understanding of Judaism is strongly connected to his fight against anti-Semitism. What would you say was Beck's position in the fight against anti-Semitism before the Nazi came to power? And later, how would you translate what he called Haltung? And how were his theological positions related to his behavior during the Nazi time? So it's a huge question at the beginning. <laughs> um, I think it is important to note that Leo Beck was born in this small town of Lissa because, as he frequently noted, in that town there was a decided favorably attitude, favorable attitude toward the Jews. His father was a rabbi in the town and was highly regarded as one of the clergy of the town. Therefore, Leo Beck arose in an atmosphere in which anti-Semitism was not dominant. It is therefore not surprising that early in his life, Beck did not write much about anti-Semitism in terms of contemporary anti-Semitism. He did write the book in answer to Harnack because Harnack had not so much attacked Jews in the present, but had argued that in ancient times, Jesus had been a moral individual, whereas Jews in their religion were far inferior theologically than were the Christians because the Jews, as Harnack had argued, were stuck in an extreme legalism. Beck in that book argued that quite to the contrary, the Pharisees, the early rabbis, had a religion that was in the prophetic tradition and stressed ethics of a level no lower in any way than that of the early Christians. Yeah, but it's fascinating Then, that... Yeah, go that, ahead. That, um, that Beck dared to challenge Hanak because Hanak was one of the leading theologians of his time. He was the first uh, head of the state library. He later on was the first head of the Kaiser Wilhelms Institute was, was a, that was the leading research uh, institution in, in the German Empire. And there is a 27-year-old from Oppeln, which is a small provincial time, who dares to speak against this man who is really someone in, 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 the, in the empire. One would have to use the Yiddish expression chutzpah. Yeah. He had a certain amount of chutzpah in, uh, in doing that. But to continue what I was saying, as we come down to the period of the First World War, 
I think that Leo Beck had great hopes that anti-Semitism uh, was something left over from an earlier time. He certainly entered the war as a patriot, as did all mm -hmm. of the German Jews, with the exception perhaps of Gershom Scholem and a few others. But certainly Martin Buber favored the German cause. But then toward the end of the war came the infamous Judenzählung, namely the census that was supposed to show mm -hmm. that Jews were not doing their share in the war effort. This must have made Leo Beck consider more seriously the question of anti-Semitism. During the Weimar period, of course, there were incidents of violent anti-Semitism, even as the Jews enjoyed the new emancipation, which they had to a greater degree during the Weimar period than they had earlier. But then I thought that during this period, Leo Beck was perhaps even naively hopeful. But then I discovered in my research a most extraordinary lecture that he gave in Königsberg in 1925, in which he said that you, we, German Jews, feel very much at home in Germany. But who knows? The Spanish Jews back in the 15th century also felt very much at home in Spain, and then they were suddenly expelled. Who knows whether the Germans may not turn against us uh, in Germany as the Christians turned against the Jews in Spain. That was remarkably prescient um, on the part of uh, Leo Beck. I also know that um, when the um, uh, desecration of cemeteries occurred, uh, in particular in 1932 in Berlin, mm -hmm. Uh, Leo Beck uh, spoke out and said that there is a great danger here that the German people will be silent when events like this occur, uh, that they will not oppose anti-Semitism even though it may be perpetrated by a small portion of the population. That's interesting. Yeah. And, and then, of course, during the Nazi period, uh, Leo Beck could not help uh, but be aware that um, there was uh, an increasing, ever-increasing amount uh, of anti-Semitism and uh, that it required uh, more and more effort uh, on the part of the Jewish community to get the Jews out of Germany as quickly as possible. Okay, but, but was that the case? Because... Um when I read some more uh, critical texts on, on Beck, then very often it said that he was far too optimistic about um, what could be done about the situation of the uh, Jews when the Nazis came to power. Would you tell us something about the Reichsvertretung der Deutschen Juden, so the Reich representation uh, that was founded in August 1933 and was led by Beck? What was his... Oh, what was his, um, I don't know, what was his Haltung, as uh, you were um, calling well, it? Let, let, let me first say something about the word Haltung before I mm -hmm. come to the Reichsvertretung. Beck used the word Haltung a great deal. He also used the word Zurückhaltung mm -hmm. uh, a great deal. Uh, Leo Beck wanted to show the Germans that the Jews did not represent the stereotype that the Nazis uh, pictured them in. 
He wanted to show that the Jews had dignity, that they had respect, that they were in charge of their own souls, if you will, um, that they didn't grovel before the authorities. Leo Beck surprised the authorities. He was arrested five times and surprised the authorities by his stature, by the fact that he didn't plead on his knees, but he stood erect and proud. Now, with regard to the Reichsvertretung, it was an amazing thing. Here we have a dictatorship with a Führer at the top, with no rights for the average citizen. Yeah. And within that German Nazi state, there was a democracy called the Reichsvertretung, in which the representatives were duly elected, in which there were different factions expressing their views, in which there was exactly the kind of society that the Nazis didn't allow for Germany as a whole. One might even say, possibly, that there was a continuation in the Reichsvertretung of the democracy of the Weimar Republic. But, but why did the Nazis allow for that? That's, that's a miracle, because we know there were plans of the Nazis to have a Jewish council, but why did they allow to have, you call it a democratic anomaly, uh, within a dictatorship? I think the Nazis at that early stage in 1933 wanted to have an address that they could turn to with regard to the Jews. Uh, and therefore, although the Jews of Germany until that time had never had a strong national organization, here the Jews and the Nazis both saw the need for having a central authority for the Jewish community. And of course, it became more and more necessary for the Jews to have such a central authority to take care of matters that became more and more urgent, such as taking care of the poor, which the Reichsvertretung and then the Reichsvereinigung did because the Jewish community was becoming ever more impoverished as the young individuals, those who were uh, employed and wage earners, uh, left for Palestine or Israel, leaving an older community uh, that required financial assistance. So the Reichsvertretung performed an important function in the Nazis' eyes, but an even more important function, I would say, in the eyes of the Jewish community. So they, they were organizing welfare, schools, emigration. So that were the all, central all tasks. All for, of that, yes. And, and, and Beck was the one who was able to provide a, a symbol of that unity by standing at the apex of that organization as its president. Yes. And, I mean, shortly after the pogrom of uh, November 9th, the Reich representation was transformed by order of Reinhard Heydrich, who also had the Wannsee Conference later on in 1942. So by order of Reinhard Heydrich, it was transformed into a compulsory organization. So it was not democratic anymore, but the leadership stayed on. So it was still Leo Beck and it was um, Heinrich Stahl from the Berlin community and Otto Hirsch as uh, Leo Beck's right hand. So why did they decide to remain in their positions? I think they decided to remain in their positions because who would have replaced them? Mm -hmm. uh, 
they were the ones who enjoyed the support of the broadest section of the Jewish community, whether it was Zionist or non-Zionist, whether it was traditionally religious or not traditionally religious. Uh, Beck represented a, um, an intermediate position that made him persona grata across the widest spectrum. I don't think anyone else could have been found to take his place. The Nazis, moreover, wanted the continuation of some kind of a Jewish central authority. It was easier for them to control the Jewish community if there was one person that they could hold responsible. Mm -hmm. So um, I would say that the Reichsvertretung, which was basically under the thumb of the Gestapo, for served an important function in enabling the Jews, even with the limited amount of freedom that they had, to uh, carry out their social welfare objectives, and as time grew, time went on, uh, even more so, able to work with authorities of Jewish communities outside of Germany uh, to hasten uh, the emigration of Jews. Okay. Uh, coming to the beginning of the Second World War, um, with the beginning in summer 1940, the first mass deportation started. Um, this became the next escalation uh, in the persecution of the European Jews. With the first regional deportations in 1940, the Reichsvereinigung protested and informed the international press. But in 1941, they decided to cooperate in the deportations. So what was the reason for the change of mind? In 1940, uh, a protest was issued. Uh, it was written by Julius Seligson, and, uh, and Otto Hirsch uh, was also uh, a part of that. Mm -hmm. The result was that both of these men uh, were arrested and were murdered. Uh, it became quite clear that to engage in such actions resulted in retribution. A case that occurred later was even more extreme. In 1942, a group of Jewish communists under Herbert Baum uh, tried to set fire to a Nazi exhibit which was intended to show how terrible life was in the so-called Soviet paradise. They were apprehended. Five of the Jews who were part of that group, it was basically a Jewish group, not only were they executed, but 100 Jews for every Jew that had participated in that was executed. It thus was clear that protests, whether they were verbal protests or whether they were protests such as that of the Baum group, would result in retributions many times uh, beyond in numbers uh, the individuals who actually had engaged in them. It simply was not productive. It was counterproductive. And therefore, Beck realized that uh, it made no sense to do that at all. Better simply to concentrate on trying to get Jews out. Mm. 
or later on to get Jews into the underground. And one of the things that Beck did through a black box that he had at the Reichsvereinigung was to gather funds that could be funneled to individuals who had decided to try to survive underground during the uh, later Nazi period. I have, I have one question on uh, Otto Hirsch, because um, in your book there's this famous quote when Hirsch was, he was arrested many times, when, when he was arrested on 9th of November 1938, um, Beck was himself not arrested, went to the Gestapo and asked for his relief. And they asked him, well, is he your right hand? And he answered, no, I'm his left hand. How was the relationship between Beck and Hirsch, who was murdered so uh, brutally in June 1941 in, in, in Mauthausen, as you said, after he prote protested against uh, deportations? The, the relationship between Beck and Hirsch was very close. Um, uh, not only did they complement each other, Beck was the spiritual leader, the one who built up the morale of the community. Hirsch was the practical diplomat and administrator. But not only that, but they saw uh, Judaism similarly. They were both liberal religious Jews. They would celebrate Passover together, for example. Uh, Otto Hirsch uh, had read the works of Martin Buber and Franz Rosenzweig, the Jewish philosophers. Mm -hmm. Uh, in other words, there was a, a real relationship, not just of a business sort, not just of a practical sort, but they were um, uh, on the same wavelength, let me say that. Were they friends? They were definitely friends. They were close friends. The loss of Otto Hirsch was a terrible blow for Leo Beck, mm -hmm. not only because he needed him, as you indicated, but also because they were such a close friendship. Yes, because Beck had lost his wife in 1937, so this must have been a terrible blow to him in uh, 1941. It was. It was, and he turned, interestingly enough, after that, to a woman named Hanna Karminski, mm -hmm. whose office was very close to his own, and with whom he could speak, as he said, on any subject. Hanna Karminski was uh, in charge of the social welfare program uh, under the Reichsvertretung and the Reichsvereinigung. Uh, and she, like Leo Beck, had made the decision to remain in Germany out of a sense of responsibility. Um, this sense of responsibility is something that I would stress as far as Leo Beck is concerned. Um, unlike other thinkers who their thought is here and their actions are here, for Leo Beck, uh, the, if you believe in justice, you have to act for justice. He used an interesting expression, which I mention in my book, verpflichtendes Denken, um, thinking that obligates. If you believe in justice, you have to act for justice. If you believe in peace, you have to act for peace. Uh, he was certainly an idealist, and I think that is also why he enjoyed such wide respect, because he was a person of integrity. He was not out for himself. He felt he had an obligation to the community. Thanks for that explanation. Um, what we are interested in from House der Wannsee Conference is um, in January 1942, the Wannsee Conference took place uh, right where we sit right now. Was there something that changed in Beck's tasks? 
and his position after um, 1942. So what were the specific consequences of the Wannsee Conference? I did not find in Beck's writings a specific reference to the Wannsee Conference. So I really don't know. All I know is that uh, in 1942, uh, he was desperately trying to get Jews out of Germany. Uh, by that time, the uh, deportations, of course, had already begun. They began in large numbers in Germany in the fall of 1941. Uh, and uh, Beck himself, of course, was uh, deported then to Theresienstadt in January of 1943. So, uh, I, I did not find a reference to the Wannsee Conference, but I certainly would see it within this pattern of Nazi anti-Semitism moving from get the Jews out of Germany to destroy the Jews. And there is one more question. Did he know about the mass murder by gas? That is one of the controversial questions. Um, we do, there is evidence that Leo Beck knew that if Jews were transported to the East, uh, there would be a disaster for them. Uh, he knew about the um, trucks that had the exhaust pipe going into the area where the people were being transported and the uh, fumes the carbon monoxide killing them. Uh, and later, he did know when he was in Theresienstadt that the transports to the east would result in, a dis again, a disaster. He didn't know exactly, but probably murder of the Jews that were taken uh, to the death camps in the east. So why did he not tell people about this mm -hmm. in Germany and in Theresienstadt? And I think the following are answers to that question. Number one, the suicide rate had already gone up very sharply in the course of the 1930s. And he was concerned that if the Jews in Berlin or in Theresienstadt knew what their fate would be, they would choose to kill themselves rather than to live on, their hope would have disappeared. That was one reason. Secondly, he considered that even those that were transported east might survive. And if they chose to take their own lives, obviously they would not. And there were individuals who, after the war, said to Beck, I am glad that you did not tell us because I might well have taken my life and this way I survived. And finally, I would say this. In those days, it was the common practice not to tell patients who were suffering from a fatal illness that they would die within three months. Because one thought it best not to take away the hope that still remained and that they would then live their few remaining months in despair out of the knowledge that they would die so soon. 
Now, today we think differently. We think that individuals who receive a, um, de a medical decree that they have only so many months to live should be told that. But that was different at that time, and Beck may have uh, been a part uh, of that. But there is um, uh, one other uh, thing that I would say about that. Yeah. Um, there's an expression in the Talmud, which I think applies here, and that is, don't judge your neighbor unless you have been in his or her place. In other words, I think that one cannot really render a judgment on something like that without having oneself been in such a situation. After the war, there were people like Hannah Arendt who said he made the wrong decision, and there were others who said he made the right decision. And that's right. But it was it was very, very uh, controversial. And uh, yes, I also and thought it's, it that... It still is controversial yeah, today among scholars. Mm -hmm. that you, of course, you have to point uh, to the fact that Beck made the decision to remain in Germany, although he had the chance to leave the country. And he did that uh, out of a feeling of responsibility to those who um, were dependent on the help of um, the Jewish organizations. Um, but yes, it was very, very controversial. And um, as I worked in, uh, in Belgium, there was an attack by Jewish partisans on the representatives of the Jewish council there to stop them from um, handing out the letters for uh, deportations, to warn them, to warn people to go into hiding. So even during the war, there were different perspectives on, on that. But okay. We would like to go to the um, time when uh, Beck was, uh, got deported to Theresienstadt uh, in January 1943, as you already told us. Um, in your book, you gave us a short description, Beck made a memorable passage of recollections. And I would just um, read it for our listeners as well, so um, we could um, hear what uh, Beck said or how he described Theresienstadt. When the sun shone, thick dust, which the high ramparts prevented from dispersing, hovered above the streets. When rain or snow had fallen, there was the deep, heavy mud, which seemed to expand daily. And from everywhere and to everywhere came the vermin, the great host of the crawling, jumping and flying against the starving. A persistent battle, day and night, month after month, year after year, that was the world. The mass swallowed the individual who was looked into multitude even as he was encased by confinement and dust and mud, by swarming hordes of insects, by hunger that seemed never to want to end. Concentrate in a camp where you could never be with yourself alone. So um, what we are, or could you tell us um, about the time of back in Theresienstadt and um, could you tell us something about his role there? He had a number of roles. One of the roles was to be rabbi. And one should remember that he, his entire life, stressed the fact that he was fundamentally a rabbi. So he performed rabbinical duties. He performed many, many funerals because so many individuals died of hunger and died of uh, typhus and other diseases, including some of members of his own family. Um, he tried to console 
uh, he tried to raise morale, and he also gave lectures. And uh, that, I think, is very significant because he remained also the scholar. He had taught at the liberal seminary mm. in Berlin for many years, and he continued to do that, and people came to hear him, and he could raise their spirits. They could feel that there was something about them that was not simply prisoner, but was human being with an interest in philosophy, with an interest in history, with an interest in religion. And Beck was the most popular of the lecturers. There were and, other and lecturers. And he was speaking on, on ancient... Who was the first, uh, the first woman to be a rabbi, Regina Jonas, yes. who also gave lectures, particularly on Jewish rituals and Jewish family life. So the Theresienstadt, which I call a ghetto rather than a concentration camp in my book, because there was uh, an opportunity to engage in intellectual and cultural activities. Uh, and Beck was very much a part of that. He could make people feel that they were human beings, even under such inhuman circumstances. And, and what, what so was he was lecturing on, uh, Michael? He was lecturing on ancient philosophy. Is that right? He was lecturing on Jewish and non-Jewish subjects. Okay. He was lecturing on Plato, and he was lecturing on Maimonides. He was mm -hmm. lecturing on Jewish history, and he was lecturing on Greek history. Uh, he mixed both, because remember that liberal Jews in Germany mm -hmm. have had a secular education. Uh, in fact, they probably knew a good deal more about Plato than they knew about Maimonides. <laughs> uh, so... Um, so he, he, he tried to address them in terms of their own intellectual backgrounds. And that in itself was a, an act of resistance to, yes. to, to claim yes. the ancient philosophical tradition. It, it was a spiritual resistance hmm. against the dehumanization yes. that was the Nazi goal. Could you just repeat what you said about um, Regina Jonas? We, I, I couldn't about hear what? it. Regina Jonas, the first um, woman rabbi. Could you repeat that? I, I didn't get that. Yeah, Regina Jonas um, had decided to study at the Lehranstalt für die Wissenschaft des Judentums, as it was called at that time, the liberal seminary in Berlin. In 1935, she was ordained by a German rabbi, Max Dienemann. Um, we know that Leo Beck, in uh, a document that I was able to see, called her his colleague. In other words, he recognized that she mm -hmm. was his colleague. Um, and we have at the Leo Beck College in London a copy of a transcript of her studies, his actually her rabbinical certificate, which has Leo Beck's signature at the bottom indicating that he uh, certified that particular document. So he certainly recognized her as uh, being a colleague. Okay. So um, Beck survived uh, Theresienstadt, and you describe in your book a very remarkable meeting that he had shortly before the liberation with one of the participants of the Wannsee Conference, with Eichmann himself. So Eichmann visited the ghetto in April 1945 and was, according to Beck, surprised to find him alive. Do you have any explanation how something like that could, could, could happen? Because um, 
it's it's hardly to believe that they just took someone with the, the same name for, for Liu Beck with someone so prominent. The, all that I have been able to discover is that there was a Rabbi Beck from Moravia, spelled his name differently, B-E-C-K, not B-A-E-C-K, uh, who had died, apparently had died in Theresienstadt itself. So word got out that Rabbi Beck had died. Okay. And somehow that uh, then it's led to the assumption that Leo Beck uh, had died. Now, maybe somebody propagated that idea in order to protect mm -hmm. Beck. I really don't know the details. I don't know that any of the details have been preserved. It was extraordinary that it happened. When Eichmann came and said, I thought you were dead, Leo Beck took it as an indication that he soon would be dead because yes. Eichmann, having found that he wasn't dead, would make sure he would be dead very soon. But apparently that didn't happen. So it, uh, it is a bit of a conundrum uh, that he was able to survive. And during the last months before liberation, took a leading role also in the administration of the camp, but only after the deportations had ceased. But during the very difficult period when sick individuals from camps in the east came to Theresienstadt and when uh, typhus was everywhere, uh, Beck remained at the camp uh, and remained there even after liberation as long as he could be uh, helpful, even though he could have left earlier. Okay. Again, a sense of, of, of duty, of a responsibility. As we are near to the end of our conversation, I would also like to talk about Beck's life after the war. So how did he cope with all that he had suffered? And um, one more question, were there also theological consequences of the Holocaust in his own thinking? Well, uh, after the war, Leo Beck uh, lived in London, where his... Uh, daughter, son-in-law, and granddaughter lived. But he came to the United States, to the institution where I taught, the Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, Ohio, to give courses there as well. He also spoke in Germany uh, and met some of the Christian uh, leaders who had been anti-Nazis, such as Otto de Belius, for example, mm -hmm. uh, or Cardinal Faulhaber. Uh, he developed a close relationship with Theodor Hess, the first uh, president of the Bundesrepublik. Um, he tried to get um, restitution funds for the German Jews. He was very much uh, concerned with that and also with getting some of the books, Jewish books that had been confiscated to London where eventually a rabbinical seminary was established that would bear his name, the Leo Beck College uh, in London. With regard to the Holocaust, it was a trauma for him. Uh, he, uh, he would write letters from London to individuals who had survived uh, and who had asked whether he had seen their relative 
in the camp, in the, uh, in the ghetto. And he would recall what it was like, uh, and it would cause nightmares. As a theologian, Beck did not attempt to justify what was happening in terms of a theology. He rather chose to walk in the footsteps of the biblical Job, who understood that God's nature could not be known. Beck had stressed in his theology all along the idea of the Gebot commandment, the ethical commandment. Ethics was at the heart of his religion. But after World War I and the devastation that he saw there, he said there must be as well an understanding of divine mystery. One can know what God wants from us, love your neighbor as yourself, but one cannot know the nature of God. One can know the nature of Judaism, but one cannot know the nature of God. It remains a mystery, and it would be an insult to those who perished in the Holocaust to suggest that maybe they died on account of their sins. Mm -hmm. Beck would never make a statement like that. So okay. for him, Judaism consisted of gebot and gebheimnis, the commandment, which meant the ethical commandment, and the mystery of God, uh, which was inexplicable to human beings. Okay, so I would like to end with a questions, uh, a question about uh, yourself. You were for most of your life professor at the Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, uh, and this was a place where German Jewish refugees from liberal communities played an enormous role, uh, men like Franz Rosenzweig, but Beck also uh, himself. Um, what was his influence on uh, liberal Jews in America? Did, did, you, did you meet Beck uh, yourself? Did you meet him uh, as a student? Jakob, I, I wish that I had met Leo Beck. Okay. Leo Beck died in 1956. I came to Cincinnati in 1960. Okay. So unfortunately, I didn't meet him. My parents did know him in Berlin, mm -hmm. uh, even though slightly. They were members more of Joachim Prince's congregation in Berlin. Okay. Um, so no, I didn't have that personal uh, relationship. But um, Leo Beck, uh, from the time that the World Union for Progressive Judaism was established in 1926 uh, until his death, Uh, he was considered the spiritual leader, along with Claude Montefiore from Great Britain, uh, of the World Union for Progressive Judaism. He spoke at its conferences. Uh, he gave spiritual direction. He argued that the reform movement should be self-understood not merely as a faction or a party within Judaism, but rather as an energy within Judaism. Okay. He strongly believed that the important thing was the noun Judaism and not the adjective liberal or orthodox. He was what one calls in Hebrew a klal Yisrael person, someone who believed in the importance of the totality of the Jewish people. He became increasingly, during his lifetime, 
more and more a, an advocate of Zionism. But it was a Zionism that paid attention not only to the Jewish case, but also to the Arab case. In 1948, together with friends in Great Britain, he tried to raise money for those who were injured in body or property during the War of Independence, whether they were Jews or they were Arabs. Like most German um, Zionists, it was a Zionism that tended to play down uh, the state uh, that favored the Zionism of Weizmann rather than of Ben-Gurion. Okay. Leo Beck was a believer that what one should stress in one's philosophy is on the one hand the individual and on the other humanity, and that one should not, under any circumstances, do what Nazi Germany did, and that was to make the state virtually divine. He was very reluctant to, uh, to favor any form of statism, especially after World War I and even more after World War II. Okay. Thanks. Um, I have like a, a question because um, we still have some time. And um, maybe you could give us some short conclusion about like what we were talking and um, to think about what Beck's role or what um, Beck meant uh, for the um, Second World War, for the Holocaust uh, in Germany. Maybe you can find some words or is it like... Hi, let me say something about Leo Beck and, and Germany after World War II. Initially, Beck believed that uh, there should not be again a Jewish community in Germany. He believed that the soil was poisoned by Nazism. He believed that um, the majority, or really all of the German people were responsible. But in the course of time, his views changed. In the course of time after the Christian church, the Protestant church in Germany, finally came around to recognizing its own role, Uh, and after um, a Jewish community did establish itself in Germany, uh, Beck began to believe that it would be possible uh, to have a, uh, a Germany that was post-Nazi. He had been very disappointed about the academics in Germany. He was very disappointed about uh, the historian Friedrich Meinecke, who had written a book after the war called The Catastrophe, in which he never mentioned the Holocaust. He was upset by what he called the bankruptcy of the academic establishment in Germany, and, of course, also the bankruptcy of the church in Germany, that the Protestant church, the Lutheran church in particular, had not seen it as its role to undertake a moral critique of the Nazi state, with the exception of that small confessing church uh, of Karl Barth and, and others. But most of the German clergy simply went along with Hitler, as did most of the academics, uh, uh, like uh, Martin Heidegger, 
for example, perhaps the most important of all German philosophers in the 20th mm -hmm. century. Thanks. It was a good conclusion. Yeah. You're welcome. Yes, thank you very much. That was really a fascinating talk about um, a fascinating uh, book you uh, wrote and it was a, a huge honor uh, for us to talk uh, to you. I uh, read these uh, German-Jewish uh, history of modern times that you edited uh, the four volumes during my study very extensively. So it was really a big thing for me uh, meeting you in person. And uh, I'm glad thank you very much that. to talking to us. <laughs> well, it was, a, it was a real pleasure. I want to thank you for inviting me to be part of your series of programs. And I look forward to seeing it when it goes live. <laughs> you will. You will. <laughs>